Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by exalting the glory of God, sharing and showing the love of Christ, and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now here's this week's message. This morning we're starting a brand new series, Walking Through the Book of Job. How many people have read through the book of Job before? Okay. A couple of people that I talk to have read through it, and this is the way that they do it. When they read through it, and maybe this is the way you've done it too, uh, when they read through it, they start with chapter one, you know, because that's interesting part, and it's the beginning, and then they get to chapter two, and they read through chapter two, because that's where Job goes through all these struggles and trials, end of chapter one, into chapter two, and then they get to chapter three, and they're like, this is kind of, I don't understand it, and they get to chapter four, and then they kind of just skip the next 30 some odd chapters and they go right to the end because that's where God shows up, you know, and then it's interesting again because, you know, whenever God shows up, it's pretty cool and interesting. Uh, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at um, what's being said by each of the people in Job's life and Job. Uh, each of them has a perspective on what's going on in Job's life and his struggles and his issues. Uh, each of them has a different perspective on why he's going through it and uh, whose fault it is and, and whether or not, you know, God is going to be able to help him through it and see him through it. And that's kind of what everyone enjoys, right? When you're going through something and everybody else has an opinion about how you got there and how you should get out. Uh, but we're going to talk about that. But first, let me give you a little bit of background. The book of Job and Jewish writings, it's called uh, one of the writings. Uh, uh, they break up the Jewish Bible, what they, we call the Bible, a little bit differently than we do. Uh, they have the law, which has the first five books of Moses. Then they have the prophets, uh, which includes some of the things that we call the historical writings, uh, Judges, Joshua, Samuel, First, Second Kings. Uh, and then they have what's called the writings, which is like the Esther and the uh, uh, Job and Psalms and Proverbs, uh, same kind of thing we have. And uh, theirs has actually Psalms, Proverbs, and then Job. Uh, we have Job and then Psalms and then Proverbs. Uh, we also consider it uh, wisdom writings. That's what they consider it, wisdom writings, because it's, there's wisdom and insight that we can gain from reading through the book of Job, just like through the Psalms and the Proverbs. Uh, so that, that's going to be our goal this morning, is to walk through, not just this morning, but over the next couple of weeks, to walk through uh, what's being said, uh, to walk through um, the perspectives of people on what we should do and how we should react when we go through trials, when we go through struggles, and to walk through the end goal, what God says, because he has a voice in the book of Job too, on here's why you're going through what you're going through. But in addition to that, uh, my hope is that when we get to the end of this series or somewhere throughout this series, that each of us, no matter where we are in our spiritual journey, that we take a step closer to God in our faith journey. Whether you're, you know, just starting out, whether you've been a Christian for years, whether you're somewhere in the middle, the goal is that we would, wherever we are, take a step closer, draw a little bit closer to God. Now, uh, just let me give you a little bit more background. A lot of people have speculated who wrote the book of Job. Some of the books in the Bible say, you know, I am so-and-so and I'm writing whatever. Job doesn't say it, but it's about the life of Job. And there's a lot of information out there about who wrote it, and that helps us understand a little bit about uh, what's being said and why it's being said. Uh, one of the perspectives is that it was written by Moses, 
that he wrote it either when he was uh, in exile from Egypt in Midian or while he was with the Israelites in the desert because he had time to write the law. So I think he also wrote um, <clears throat> the book of Job. Uh, some people believe it was the descendants of Shem, who was one of the sons of Noah, that, that he, his descendants wrote it, and that it was more of the descendants, not so much from the Jewish line, but more of the other Middle Eastern lines. And some people even believe it was written in Arabic and later translated into Hebrew by Solomon. Uh, but one of the more popular, obviously, uh, things is that Job wrote it. Because it's his story, it's his life. And he was like, wow, I just went through this amazing story. Here's my testimony. And he sit and wrote it down, divinely inspired by God. Uh, other people lean towards that it was uh, a guy named Elihu, who is one of the people that shows up when Job is going through a struggle. And now, let me, let me show you this. I kind of lean towards that, and let me show you why. Uh, because in Job chapter 6, now there's three people that are referenced for the first 30 some odd chapters as speaking, and Job is dialoguing with them. So imagine if you're going through a struggle, three of your closest friends show up. There's actually four show up, but the only ones referenced are three, and that is Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. But there's this guy named Elihu who's there, and it's not until the very end that he speaks. But I kind of lean towards he's probably the one who wrote it, because here's what he writes. Here's what he writes. Uh, so Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite, said... I am young in years, and you're old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. So he's indicating, I've been here the whole time, even though all we've heard about are, are the other three. He says, I've been here the whole time, and then suddenly he speaks up. And it's also custom at that time, not only were women, like we talked about last week, they weren't mentioned, they weren't referenced, they weren't given a voice. Younger men weren't either. If you were younger men and there were older men around, you were kind of discounted because you didn't... It, it was thought you didn't have any wisdom. You didn't know what you were talking about. Uh, so then he, this is what he says. He says, I too will have my say. I too will tell what I know, for I am full of words, and the spirit within me compels me. So he's saying, hey, I feel like God's Holy Spirit is in me. He also says, I will show no partiality, nor will I flatter anyone, for if I were skilled in flattery, my maker would soon take me away. So he says, I'm not trying to do this to put myself on a pedestal, because if I did, my maker would take me away. But then at the very end, God comes, God shows up, and God says this. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he has this big dialogue he has with Job. Then he says to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now, Basically, and that's what we're going to look at, because they all have a perspective on God, and God shows up and says, hey, what you guys are saying about me is not true. You basically have lied about me. You have a false perspective about who I am, but he doesn't say that about Elihu, as if what Elihu said, yeah, was kind of right. It was a good perspective on God. So now here's the thing. We know... Um, we don't know who wrote it. We kind of know a little bit about us, which I'll get into in a minute, the area where Job is from. But we know that the book is considered scripture because it's referenced in other places throughout the Bible. And Ezekiel, Ezekiel says this, for, chapter 14, says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful, and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply and send famine upon it and kill its people and their animals. Even if these three men, 
Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. So God is saying that, hey, he's telling Ezekiel, tell everyone that, hey, um, these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were righteous men. And God is talking to them uh, right before the fall of Israel saying, hey, but if I have to come and let my wrath loose on a nation, even the righteousness of these three men wouldn't save it. So God includes Job as a real person in history along with Noah and Daniel. And then in James, it says this, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, this is important because there's a lot of people, when you read through and when we get into what Job went through, they're like, there's no way that's real. There's no way that's true. But God revealed to Ezekiel, hey, it's true. And James, the brother of Jesus, is writing here saying, we know it's true. He's referring to it as a historical thing as he's writing to the other Israelites says, hey, we saw what the Lord did. We knew about his suffering. So he's referring to it as if it's a real historical thing. And then Paul mentions it. He actually quotes from it rather than mentions it. Uh, he writes to the Corinthians and says, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in her craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. Now, the only reason I'm referencing this is because what he quotes there, he catches the wise in her craftiness. That comes right out of Job chapter 5. He catches the wise in her craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are swept away. So, all of the New Testament people looked back at the book of Job and said, hey, this is a real event. It took place, and they kind of view it as a real thing rather than as some New Age Christian or whatever religious people think today. It's just a story. It's just an allegory. It's just a, a, a story to exhibit God's grace and, and all this stuff. And they look at it and say, no, we know this happened, all right? So... Uh, I don't know where you are, but for all intents and purposes, this is a real historical event that took place. Now, that brings us to the voices that are speaking uh, because it's not just who they are. Um, it's the perspective that they bring to the conversation on what's going on in the book of Job. And, and they talk about something that we talk about a lot here because basically when you look through the book of Job, it's about very real people, Job, his family, his children, his friends, going through real-life issues. I mean, homelessness, financial ruin, medical issues, uh, physical anguish and pain, depression, even suicidal thoughts, stuff that people in our culture go through every single day, and we may know some people who go through that, and they're talking about all this and going through all this, wondering the same thing that our friends, our family, and you and me, we've all wondered, hey, I'm going through this, where's God? Why hasn't God shown up? And even more so, why did God allow this to happen? Now, the bigger question that they answer or that they look for is, can I even trust God to show up while I'm going through this struggle? It's not that they're doubting God's real. 
That, that doesn't even come into question in, in all their conversation. It's can I trust God while I'm going through this painful issue, this financial issue, this medical issue, this family relationship issue? And in response to that question, every single one of them has a perspective and a voice. And the first voice or perspective that we hear from uh, is Satan's perspective. He shares in and he says, here's, and, and, and we may have been there when there's this outside voice and we're asking, where's God? I'm going through this. This outside voice is telling us, God's not going to show up. God's not going to be there for you. God can't help you through this. But then there's also the voice of Job. And, and as we, we dig into it, you're going to see he's, he's going through pain, physical pain. He's going through emotional pain. He's going through financial distress, uh, all kind of issues all at once that some people would say, yeah, I can understand why some of his thoughts and some of the things he communicates are suicidal and depression because he goes through a lot. But then there's the voice of his family and friends. And then there's the voice of God who says, here's, here's, and I don't want to jump to the end, but basically says, here's what's going on. And we're going to look at all of these perspectives um, as we walk through this series. So uh, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bible to the book of Job. If you don't have a Bible, it should be one under your seat, left, right, somewhere around you. And uh, we're going to start walking through this. And there are 42, I think, 42 chapters. We're not going through all 42 verse by verse. Uh, but we're, we're going to jump around um, um, to kind of emphasize, emphasize the perspective of each of the people. So in Job chapter 1, Verse 1, this is what it says. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. Now, the very first time I, some, I, I don't remember, Sunday school, kid, whatever, my mind immediately meant to, went to the Wizard of Oz, because that's what Uz sounds like. And I was hoping there would be flying monkeys and, and all that kind of stuff, but that's not the case. So in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. And, and the language there is not fear like he was afraid of God. It was more he was in reverential awe of God. And the language kind of indicates it's because of his awe and respect for God why he shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. This may not seem relevant to us because we don't have donkeys and whatever, uh, but if you think about someone who has, let's say, six, ten, or maybe 17 franchises of a business they own in and around the city of Pittsburgh, and they have, you know, maybe 100 employees, uh, maybe they have, you know, an assistant or two at their house helping them and all that kind of thing, then we can get an understanding of it, right? This is, this is the guy of a, maybe the mid to top portion of a small business owner. Uh, some say he's more of the top portion of a big business, but it wasn't like a global, com he wasn't like in charge of Google or Apple like we think today with like 20,000 employees. But he did have a large business, a large financial empire. And in verse 4, um, his sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned 
and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. Now, here's the thing. Uh, it says he was in the land of Uz, which uh, geographically probably east of the Jordan River. Uh, we don't know exactly where it is, but it is also mentioned in Scripture uh, in the book of Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. And then he says, so I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink. Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, the kings and officials, to make them a ruined and an object of horror, an object of horror and scorn, a curse as they are today. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his attendants, his officials, and all his people. And then here he says, and all the foreign people there, all the kings of Uz, all the kings of the Philistines, those of Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the people left at Ashdod. So this is Jeremiah saying, hey, God sent to me and said, I'm to let all these people know that doom and destruction is coming. His wrath is going to be poured out. And one of the people, he says, were the kings, or some of the people were the kings of Uz. So... This helps us understand a little bit about the location and, and where it was. Uh, not in Jerusalem, but had interactions with Jerusalem. Uh, and then uh, Job says that he would send and have his children para uh, not parified, purified after a period of feasting had run its course. And what we need to understand is this wasn't they would go to a party and come home at 4 in the morning. This was days or possibly weeks, but more likely days of just straight on partying and feasting. Think the week of Mardi Gras. Think the week after a, you know, Steelers win a Super Bowl. There's just nonstop partying and events all over the city, that kind of thing. But what he would do is he would offer a burnt offering for them for their sins. He was basically saying, I'm going to intercede on their behalf and offer a burnt sacrifice for their sins. And from a theologian standpoint, uh, in this aspect, some people say he was acting like a type of Christ. In other words, because that's what Christ did for us. Christ said, I'm going to give a sacrifice for all of our sins, but he himself was the sacrifice. This also helps understand about when it was written, because burnt offerings as a sacrifice for sin didn't come until after the law, so this was likely uh, sometime after the law had been given. Now, one day, verse 6, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Now, this is, this is kind of important because... We don't tend to think of, you know, Satan just out there roaming freely, but he is. He has free reign over the earth. Just like if you wanted to, you could travel to anywhere, go hang out anywhere, so can he. So no matter where we go, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our families, in the world, there is that temptation, there is that person who specifically their goal is to... to Basically, basically mess up and destroy our relationship with God. So there's not this understanding that, hey, I don't ever have to worry about being tempted or, or, or being drawn away from God. It's a very real, you know, present situation. But then he goes on and says this. Um, 
The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has and underline everything he has? Because basically Satan's saying, hey, you have put protection on everything that belongs to him, his business, his family, everything that is his, you've put a hedge of protection around it. He says, you have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, here's the thing. If Satan can admit that, hey, you know what? God blesses, like, immensely, then surely the people of God can acknowledge God blesses us immensely. And he doesn't just bless us immensely. I mean, the Bible says that he will pour out, he will open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings that we aren't even able to receive. And when we sit at small group, we start off saying, hey, what are we grateful for? That's the way we start so that at least on a weekly basis, if not daily, we take a moment and give thanks to God for everything that he blesses us with. But here's Satan's perspective. His perspective is basically God blesses people and then people praise God. And there is some truth to that because God does bless his people and God's people do praise him. And, and the Bible even says that God seeks worshipers. I mean, God created everything. He owns everything, but he seeks worshipers. So if worshipers start worshiping him and praising him, then yeah, he's going to start blessing them. Now, here's the, here's the thing. Most people think that because God blesses his people, that those people don't go through anything. But God can bless you, and you can still get in a car accident. Your child can still get sick. You can still lose a loved one. You can still get cancer because we live in a fallen world. But that doesn't mean that God still doesn't love us, doesn't care about us, and isn't able to bless us. And a lot of people think that this is the struggle, this is the heart of the book of Job, that Satan is going against God. But that's not where the struggle is, because Satan knows he can't go against God. Satan is going against us. That's where the struggle is. And I'm going to put this up here because there's another perspective that uh, people have. And we already read through this, but I'm going to put it up here so we can read through it again. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. How many people think that God is kind of like, yeah, he's kind of proud of Job and Job's perspective. He's like, yeah, that's kind of like when you say, look at my boy. He just made a touchdown. Look at my girl. She just graduated or whatever. You have pride in him and he has pride in him. But then people think, you know what? This was so cruel for God to just throw Job under the bus. If he had such pride in him, why did he dangle him like, a, you know, the red thing in front of the bull, like, here, Satan, here, Satan, come look at Job. But that's not what happened. Because when God said, have you considered, now, remember this, 
when God asks a question, he already knows the answer because he knows all things. And when God asked this question, Job's answer was, I mean, Satan's answer was very specific. He said, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? The reason that Satan knew that is because Satan already had Job in his crosshairs. He was already looking to go out and target Job. And God didn't say, hey, have you considered him? Because God was throwing him under the bus. God was basically saying, hey, if you're going to consider Job, I'm going to intervene, and I'm going to limit what you can do, and everything that happens now is going to be for either Job's benefit or for God's glory, because that's the only two reasons God allows anything to happen, either for our benefit or for his glory. And we look and say, God, that was kind of cruel. How in the world is it for Job's benefit that you let him go through all of this struggle and all of this pain and all of this anguish? And we're going we're gonna to walk through that in a couple of weeks. But now I want to ask the question, so what? Why is it important that we understand that God wasn't throwing him under the bus? That God was orchestrating these events, even though they're horrible and painful events, that God was in charge of all of these events the whole time because God wanted Job to know, and this is what he tells them when, he gets to the, when we get to the end of Job, but he wanted us to know as we're reading through it that we are not alone when we're going through pain, when we're going through struggle, when we're going, and again, we're going to look, and Job goes through some harsh relationship issues. He goes through the, I mean, devastating financial issues. He loses not one, not two, not three, but all of his children, all of his business, literally goes bankrupt within minutes. And then, if that isn't enough, for lack of a better term, gets like, I don't know what disease you would call it. Imagine a painful cancer, but instead of eating away in the inside, it's eating away your flesh on the outside. All of that he goes through. And the reason why God, and you may say this is harsh for God, but this is beneficial for us. The reason why God allows him to go through that is so that he knows that God is with him every step of the way. And this is what Jesus tells us in uh, John chapter 16. Jesus answered them, do you now believe, this is the amplified version, do you believe it at last? But take notice, the hour has coming and it has arrived when you will be dispersed and scattered. Every man to his own home, leaving me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. This is Jesus saying, hey, there's, and, and, and this is at the end of his life. And he's telling his disciples, you guys are going to abandon me. You guys are going to leave me. But then he tells them, I have told you these things so that in me you may have perfect peace and confidence. In the world you will have tribulation and trials and distress and frustration and sickness and financial issues and cancer and loss of loved ones. But be of good cheer. Take courage, be confident, certain, undaunted, for I have overcome the world. I have deprived it of power to harm you and have conquered it for you. Because Job and Jesus, all of them point to the fact that when we go through trials, when we go through struggles, that we are never alone. But also... Uh, so that we know that you matter. And I know there's still a lot of, you know, blue lives matter for the cops and black lives matter, you know. But here's the thing. You matter. Every single person matters to God. 
In, in John chapter 3, and we're all familiar with this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. That word that's used for world literally means cosmos. The best way to understand it is every person in existence God cares about and he loves and he sent his son to die for. So you're not alone. You matter. And most importantly, you are not alone. Not just because God is with you, but because the greatest asset that God gives to us is another spirit-filled believer. Uh, this is what Paul writes to the church in Galatians. He says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And then he goes on and says this, Right now, therefore, every time we get the chance, let us work for the benefit of all, starting with the people close to us in the community of faith. We're supposed to be there for one another when we go through things. We're supposed to help one another when we go through things. And it's great when you can be there for your neighbor or a family member or a friend, but if there is a brother or sister in Christ, someone that you call your church family that's struggling, the best thing that we can do for them is to show up. And that's initially what Job's friends do for him. They just show up. Everything he's gone through. They show up and they just sit with them for a week. They take time away from their family. They take time away from their business. And they just show up and they sit with them just to say, I'm here for you. I don't know that I can say anything. I don't know that I can do anything. But I'm here. So as the band comes up, I'm going to ask you to bow your head. and I just want to take a moment and, and pray for us. God, we thank you for the fact that you... Do not leave us alone. That you are always, always, always with us. With every financial struggle, every medical struggle, every relationship struggle, every issue we face. That not only are you here with us, not only do you fill us with your Holy Spirit, not only did you die for us to show us that you love us and that we matter, but that you give us the church, other spirit-filled believers, so, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts that if there are people in our circles of influence who are going through issues, who are going through struggles, it's great when we post, I'm praying for you. But, God, if we're able, put it on our hearts to show up, to just sit with them, to be there for them, to be a resource for them as they go through whatever they're going through. So that we don't just tell them, hey, you can trust God and then walk away. But we sit with them and show them and walk with them as they give their struggles over to you, Lord, and put it in your hands. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we just want to take a moment right now and just acknowledge that, as your word says, in this world there will be struggles be trials, there will be tribulation, there will be sickness, but you also give us your Holy Spirit. And although, as we said earlier, you do bless us immensely, we live in a world that is fallen and filled with sin. 
so we will go through some trials. We will go through some struggles. We will go through some sickness. We will go through issues. But I also pray that we will have the strength to put our faith and trust in you and leave those things in your hands. God, we pray that you bless us as we go. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. amen.